All right, so the scripture reading today is going to be John 1, 32 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, see. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you again. And it, as I already mentioned, it is in 96. So I recognize that you could be a hundred other places this morning, most of you, and you chose to be here. And that encourages me and it encourages uh, those seated around you as well as we worship Jesus together. So thanks for making that choice. I pray you are finding rest um, physically this weekend, but just as importantly or more importantly for your souls as well, not just physically, but that you're finding rest in Jesus. Let's pray and we'll get right down to work. Father, we can't do what we're about to attempt to do apart from your help. We turn to your word because we believe that as our Father, that is where you have spoken most clearly to us and most authoritatively. And so we turn to your word expecting to hear your voice. And we actually believe what the Bible says that uh, according to your words, there is, there's life. There's life there. So we believe that. So we're going back to your voice, Dad. We need to hear your voice uh, because we live by your voice. And we, we die in the absence of your voice. So, Father, please send your spirit again to do what uh, he always does for us. He opens our ears to hear your voice. He opens our eyes to see you. And, Father, what we're asking for is that, again, we would see Jesus for who he is, our, not only our older, perfect brother, but our rescuing king, our better hero, uh, the promised one, uh, the one in whom we have our life. And we pray that you do these things for us by your grace and through your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're pressing into week two of our series in John, the gospel account, or the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news according to John, John's perspective on the life of Jesus. 
you know that our series theme, if you were here last week, is Jesus is life. Jesus is life. It's our Danny Rojas series, right? Jesus is life. I want to start with a question for you this morning. If I were to ask you, who is the single best storyteller that you know of or have ever experienced? Who is that person? Who's the best storyteller in your life? For me, it's a guy named Jack Free. This is Jack right here with his family. Anybody remember Jack? Oh, a few more than in the first. That's good. But a small minority, though, which, again, just goes to show you how aggressive our turnover is here. Jack and Michelle were here for four years, and we're only five, five and a half years old as a church plant, so they were here a long time. Uh, he served, they served on our pastoral team. Jack was one of our elders, and they, man, they were just life-giving to so many of us. But Jack has a gift of telling story. He also has a gift of karaoke. Uh, I don't like singing in public, and I have only ever gotten up on one karaoke stage, and I will only ever get up on one karaoke stage, and it was with Jack. Irresistible buddy, just... Pulled me in. Jack tells stories, and when he tells a story, he sweeps you up into the story. You feel all the feels. You laugh. You sit in suspense. You cry, and then you finish, and you're like, wait, why was I just crying? You cried because Jack made you cry. That's Jack. He has a gift. Jack's other gift is the gift of uh, making all of those around him believe that every piece of their life story matters. And that's really a gospel gift because that's what the gospel says to us. The culture is very dismissive of our stories or pieces of them. The gospel says, no, every second, every, every ounce, every piece of your life matters. Every piece of your story. And God is working redemptively through all the brokenness, all the good and all the bad, to rescue and restore you. Your story matters. A story this morning. We're going to look at the stories of five young men. And to be specific with you, um, these are stories of the, the points in time in which they came to follow Jesus when they first met him and became a follower. There are two key terms in John that we've already terms are disciple and follower, following or follower, okay? Disciple is not a term we use a lot in our culture today. Uh, so let's use a synonym. Disciple simply means learner, one who postures themselves at the feet of a master or in our culture here, a sensei to be a learner. And what are we learning? We are learning the words and the ways of that master. That's, that's what we're learning. We give ourselves to learn the words or the teaching and the ways, the manner of life of this master. Now, the word follower, following, or followers, which we'll see in the text here this morning, is very important because it kind of uh, gives a greater weight to that word disciple. So uh, a, a disciple, when they, when they follow, which is what disciples do, following implies I view my teacher as authority and master over me, and I have decided to follow them with all of my life. And in following, I submit all of me to them. So all my preconceived ideas, my worldviews, everything, right? So... Um, Politically, now, right, before Jesus, I have my own political ideas or worldviews. Now they're all submitted to the teachings of Jesus. My ideas of human sexuality and gender and all of these things, a million different voices in the culture as a follower of Jesus now, it's a beautiful gift, really. I submit to a single voice, his voice. And regardless of how I feel or what I think, I work to align my convictions and my choices with his. 
and where they are out of step, I recognize it's not Jesus who needs to change, like I need to change, right? So disciple and follower together. A learner who learns the words and the ways of another and follows them with every piece of their lives. So the stories that we'll hear this morning specifically are stories of following Jesus, becoming a disciple. And that matters because everybody in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you have a story. You have a story. I recognize there are some of you in here who are not yet Christians, and there are some of you in here who bristle a little bit when I would even use the word yet. Um, Maybe you're an atheist. Maybe you're an agnostic. You still have a story. You may not have a story of Jesus yet, at least not that you're aware of. I'm glad that you're here, and uh, pieces of our talk this morning speak to you personally uh, throughout, and uh, my prayer for you is that you will come to have a story that has found its life in Jesus, and he is, he is the hero of your story, okay? So stories this morning, that's where we're headed. Um, two things about story. It's incredibly important for us in the gospel when we have a Jesus story to learn to uh, rehearse our story and to retell our story, and here's the distinction. When I rehearse my story, it's for my good, so if I have a, a, a story of becoming a follower of Jesus and I rehearse that story, I'm reminded of all the ways that my father has been kind to me over the years. So it's good for my soul because I see my father's kindness. I see mercy instead of judgment. I see love. I see a family. All these things. So rehearsing is vital for us. That's part of the reason we gather every week, right? And we celebrate communion. Communion is one of the ways that we rehearse our stories of being adopted into the father's family. So we rehearse and that's good for you. But then we learn to retell, and that's good for the people around you. And that's what we'll see in the narrative today. So it matters that as a family who have been swept up into God's story, that we learn to rehearse our own stories for our own good, but also that we commit ourselves to learning them well enough so that we can retell them winsomely for the good of other people. And here's our big idea for the morning. It's this. Everyone who follows Jesus has a Jesus story. So I want to do some work with you this morning and just ask you this simple question, which we'll work to answer. What is yours? What is your Jesus story? What's your story? If you don't usually use paper and pen when we gather, I'd encourage you to do that or just pull out your phone and uh, kind of keep track. I have some questions for you this morning and some framework that we can hang story on that we'll see in the narrative. Because I want us to have confidence in this area, the ability to rehearse our gospel stories and the ability, and really to see the value, the importance in retelling our story, okay? So rehearsing and retelling. And there's our big idea and kind of the framework that we'll use to navigate our way through the text. First, their story. We see five disciples of Jesus this morning. I feel bad for the fifth guy. Only four of them are named. Did you notice that when he read for us a few moments ago? We got four names. But really, there are five stories being told. But um, a lot of people actually believe that fifth disciple, who's unnamed here in this, in this text, is John himself. And that's his modest way of including himself in the story without drawing attention to himself. I think that's a viable possibility. But bottom line is, we just don't know. We don't know who the fifth one is. So four stories. Uh, four stories of following God. So their story, then we'll turn, we'll pivot and spend just a few minutes based upon what we learn about their stories, asking ourselves about our own stories, our own stories of Jesus. And then for those of you in the room who are not yet followers of Jesus, um, I'll work just to point you back to a few aspects uh, of this text that may be helpful or encouraging to you. And then we'll pivot one more time and we'll consider tomorrow's story, the story that's not yet written 
uh, with some implications coming out of this text that might guide the way that we step into tomorrow's story. So that's where we're, we're going. Let's start with their story. So we meet four named disciples, and I want to give you kind of four, um, four hooks that we can hang pieces of their story on that we'll see in the narrative. Uh, the first hook is place or location, right? A, a particular geographical place where the story unfolds. The second hook, and these will be relevant for us too, the second hook would be a person or a friend. Who is that person that first pointed them to Jesus? We'll see that in the story, okay? So we have place or location. We've got friend. The third hook is first view of Jesus. You could just write the word Jesus. In other words, when they became a disciple, what was the first glimpse of Jesus that they had received, which had worked to kind of persuade their heart or convince them that Jesus is the better hero that they needed, okay? So first view of Jesus. And then the fourth and final hook has to do, you can call it conversation, or you could call it questions. For each of them, there's a brief dialogue with Jesus. Some of them brought questions to Jesus. For some, it was just Jesus telling them something. But when you first came to Jesus, there was a conversation. Something was said. You received words from him, and you said words back. For some of us, those words are distant memory, and we need to rediscover them so that we can rehearse and retell. Okay, so you got the four hooks? All right. So let's just start with place and then knock it out of the way so we can focus on the other three. Here's a little map for you geography nerds. Um, Bethany, see that city right there? Bethany, the way it's referred to in the text, Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. That's where our story begins. And the first three young men, Andrew, the nameless disciple with Andrew, and then Simon are having their stories unfold right here in Bethany. They become followers there. Then they cross the Jordan, and Jesus wants to take a trip up into Galilee. And so either somewhere along the road to Galilee, um, you see Galilee's kind of up to the northwest uh, near Canaan. Either on the way or right when they arrive is when he meets and calls the next two young men in the story. So that would be, um, who do we got? We got Nathaniel and Philip, right? So he'll call them as well. So that's the place. Why does place matter? Place matters profoundly in our gospel stories, and here's why. Religion looks at you and tells you, you need to go and take a pilgrimage to a Mecca to get right, to become part of a family. You need to go to Mecca. You need to go up to a mountain. You need to go to a majestic city. And through the gospel, Jesus looks at you and says, no, you don't need to take a pilgrimage to Mecca because I have taken a pilgrimage to you. I don't have to go to Mecca because Jesus has taken his pilgrimage to me. And that's why these cities matter. These are inconsequential towns. They're dead ends. They're dusty dirt roads. All the stats that apply to the places you don't want to move because of school districts or taxes or all these things. That's these, your forever home's not in either of these places, right? They're forgotten. I mean, let's just have a little fun with this. Who here in the room feels like they have the most forgotten or the, 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 the small town they originated should be most forgotten or least memorable or most insignificant? Any takers? What do you got? Yeah. Clovis, New Mexico. Do I have a second? Sold. All right. In the first service, a young lady actually seated in the same row you are now. Must be something about the row. Said, New Jersey. Amen. Amen. So I married a young lady from New Jersey. I'm sorry, dog. I forgot about that. So we've had some talks about Jersey. Here's the point. If Jesus will go to Jersey or Clovis, New Mexico, he will go to your town too. 
Place matters. See, that's the difference between the gospel and other religions. Other religions, you got to get out of your place to go to the Savior. The gospel says the Savior goes to the forgotten places. No pilgrimage for you because the rescuing king has made a pilgrimage to your town. Location matters, okay? So first, two, first three are called in Bethany. They cross the Jordan River. They head to Cana and along the way. That's, these are the places where stories unfold and places matter so much. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus steps into your broken place. There is no town on planet earth so far, so forgotten, or so neglected that Jesus won't go. He goes to these places and He rescues. He redeems the brokenness and He restores. Guys, there is unseen injustice all around our crushes people image bearers of god and it is neglected by the world it won't sell well on social media and we just forget guess what jesus someday will return and make everything right in all of the forgotten places no injustice unturned that's the beauty of the gospel you don't have to leave your place in fact in these stories what do you see Jesus actually sends his people right back into the broken places they came out of. Place matters so much in our story, okay? So there's the places. Let's unpack the stories of these guys, and we'll start with Andrew and the unnamed disciple. So Andrew's with whom at the beginning of the story? John the baptizer, whom we met last week. So John serves as the friend for Andrew and this other guy, pointing them to Jesus. And how does he do it? It's in your text. He says, for the second consecutive day in a row, when Jesus walks by, he says, well, he didn't say that's my cousin, but that was his cousin, and he said, hey, that's the Lamb of God. And in the passage we saw a week ago, he said, that's the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. That's what the Lamb does. Today, when we read, we just saw a Lamb of God, but same implied meaning. He is the one who will take your sin away. Now, let's just step back from the narrative for a moment and ask this question, and I know we'll be reading into it a little bit, but I think it matters. Because did you notice as we read, each of the young men are given a different perspective of who Jesus is and what he did when they first met him. No two are alike. They're all different. Why would God do that? Why would they do that? Because you each have a unique storyline. You each have unique burdens and needs. I mean, they're common to us all, but our experiences are different. And again, more good news of the gospel. We don't have to get ourselves up out of our broken stories and come to one view of who God is the beauty of God steps down off the mountains into the brokenness of our valleys and shows himself to us according to the need in our hearts. So here's Andrew. And how does he get, what's his glimpse of God? Lamb. What does a lamb do? A lamb was a substitute. And so Andrew's first view of who Jesus is, Andrew, John says, this is the one who will substitute for you all of your rebel choices, all of your brokenness, all of the things you have done to wound other people. Jesus is going to take all of the consequences for that and all of the Father's judgment for you. He's going to be your substitute. So he will exchange your guilt with his righteousness and you'll be adopted in as a son fully forgiven. You're a rebel deserving judgment, but there's the Lamb of God, your substitute. So I see Andrew and his unnamed friend as somebody carrying a burden of guilt and shame because the best good news of the gospel for them was that Jesus would be their substitute. Some of you in this room can identify or resonate with that. That's that's me, Andrew. Guilt and shame. So immediately, notice what it says in the text. When they heard this. That's all they had to hear. That's that's my substitute. He's the one that's going to make me right with God. I'm in. I'm following. I, I believe he is my substitute and they follow him. 
right? So that's how John points them to Jesus, first view of Jesus. What about their conversation? Jesus looks at Andrew and he says, uh, what are you looking for? You ever have a conversation with a famous person that made you really intimidated or maybe somebody really senior to you in rank and you had your talk, you had your first sentence all lined up and then you opened your mouth and said the dumbest thing. I kind of think that's what happened here, maybe, where Jesus is like, what are you looking for? And all he could get out was like, hey, where are you staying? A little weird for the first line, right? Where are you staying? But if we look at it a little more closely, and I think this is true, that would be in that culture a young disciple's way of saying, I am following you, and so wherever you call home, I'm calling home. Your family is my family. So I think it's Andrew's way of signaling Jesus, I'm in, and give me your address and you're not going to shake me. Like, I am staying where you stay. The other thing I think it might be is Andrew's way of saying, because what did Jesus ask? What do you want from me? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? I think it's Andrew's way of perhaps expressing, well, I got a lot of questions, so I can't get started right now. Where's your place? Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to require a sitting down and having a lot of conversation, bringing a lot of questions to Jesus. We can, we can relate to that. And so what does Jesus say? He says, all right, well, come and see. Family, I love that piece of our narrative. It should be encouraging to us as it was to Andrew. Jesus does not turn any of your hard questions away, and you have them. You have unresolved questions in your heart that give you pause about who God is and uh, the brokenness in our world and all the things. Jesus will always say to you, come and see. But again, he's the sensei. sensei. We're the student. He's the master. We're the student. We're learning. So it's also Jesus' way of saying, I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you in my time, and I'm going to tell you in my way, and you're going to need to trust me and follow me along the way. I'll tell you. Come and see. Come and see. I'm going to show you, but when I'm ready for you to see and in the way that I want you to see, right? So his first conversation with Jesus. So that's Andrew and the unnamed disciple. Maybe some of you resonate with them. And then what does Andrew do? He goes and he finds his brother, right? Finds his brother Simon, so our, our next young man. And he says to Simon, Simon, we found him. We found the one who is the, what's it say there? The Messiah or the Christ. Again, two words we don't use a lot in our vocabulary, so how can we understand that? Messiah or Christ for a Jewish person, they would have understood this is God's anointed one. Again, another phrase we don't use a lot. So we could say it this way. This is God's chosen one. God chose this one to be the better hero. Remember, we explored that theme last week. New beginning, better hero. This is how, how they would have viewed that. This, Jesus, we found the one who has been promised to us, the better hero that can finally do the work of restoring and rescuing God's people. So Simon's first view of who Jesus is. Now, why might that be significant to Simon? Why might the theme of Jesus is better hero, the chosen one, be significant to Simon? What do we know about his personality? You ever heard the term Messiah complex? Some of you in this room have this. I'll, I'll tell you why later, but I think actually of all the characters this morning in the story, I think most of you will find that you would align yourself with Simon for this very same reason. Why would I say that about Simon? You remember in the garden when Jesus was going to be arrested? What was Simon's first play? Went for a sword. He was going to be the, the hero of the day, right? He had Metallica song going through his head, and he's like, that's going to be me. I'm going to save the day. And Jesus is like, dog, put, put your sword away. And hold on, let me just pop the ear back on this guy's face too, right? Crazy. 
But that wasn't a one-off for Simon, was it? That was kind of who he was. All, you read the gospel, and you're like, oh, that's, that's Simon. Quick word, center of the circle. In fact, you notice that for those of you who are siblings, you might identify more with Andrew because you know what happens to poor Andrew after this narrative? Fade to black. Gone. And guess who comes to the forefront? Simon, right? Maybe Andrew's second born. I don't know. Simon's the favorite son. I think, I think there's a tendency in Simon to be the hero of the day. He lived among an oppressed people in a broken town, economically oppressed. Um, there was a lot of ethnic injustice exercised against the Roman Empire towards the people living in his community. I mean, all the things. It was all broken. He had to be a hero to his family. He had to be a hero to his people. He was kind of that type A guy anyway with a tendency to be heroic, right? But after living that way for so long, life kind of presents you with some cold realities. You may be a hero. It may be true for some of you. You're good people doing a lot of good things. But the scope of brokenness and injustice in our world is so great that your heroic efforts amount to you scooping down and picking up the smallest pebble you can find and throwing it off the seawall into the East China Sea because it makes a massive splash and changes the course of the ocean and the tide, right? No, because it disappears into the dark water and it's forgotten and it doesn't change a thing. Guys, that's the reality for our stuff, our good stuff. The world is so broken Many of you joined because you wanted to contribute to change and do good things. And now 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, you've realized that even those noblest of efforts have fallen like a pebble into the East China Sea. Your work will be forgotten. And it's not just about where you work or who you work for. It's about your own heart. Life has demonstrated that you need a better hero. And in case you forget, your spouse will tell you that for you. And on your worst days, you've told that to your spouse. She or he is just not the person you thought that they would be. You need a better hero. I envision that in, in Simon. And Jesus is the better hero. That is the good news of the gospel for Simon. And so he follows his brother, goes to Jesus. And what's their conversation, the next talk? What's their conversation? It's simple. Jesus says his name, and he says, I'm changing your name. And this is who you're going to be. He's actually the first disciple to get a nickname. Yo, Rocky, right? It's Rock. It's Rocky. Yo, Rock. Or maybe it's Adrian. I don't know. But Rock is the first, first guy with a nickname. But what's happening is, without all the explanation, Jesus is saying, in my family, you get a new identity. This is who you were, and this is who you are now. And, and Simon's got to be like saying, I'm not the Rock. I just found out you were the better hero. Like, life has already demonstrated to me. I'm, I'm no Rock. And what the gospel is going to do in Simon's life is, it's going to take Simon, who has been trying to live as the rock for himself and the people around him, and show him the good news of the gospel is Jesus is the rock. And the way that we live as rocks is to realize we're not the hero, but we exist to point to the true and better one. And so Jesus does this for all of us. You're, you're welcomed into the family. He says, you're a son now, you're a daughter now, you're righteous, you're forgiven, you're a saint. And you're like, I don't feel like any of those things but that's the beauty of the gospel jesus declares what is true of us now in the father's family and in the way that he just said hey, this is what you can expect as you follow me and spend time in your family i'm going to make you into this thing that i say you already are it's beautiful so there's simon now peter and now my favorite character in the narrative philip notice he's all 
Notice he's, only the, he's the only character in the narrative who doesn't have a person go to him or bring him to Jesus. Did you see that when we read? Nobody. There's not a friend involved in this. So what does Jesus do? Jesus himself goes to Philip. And just all we have are the words, follow me. That's all we have. That's all we have. And I don't want us to take too much liberty with our imagination, but it has to be striking. There's this beautiful view of Jesus here where there, there, there is everybody else in the narrative has somebody telling them about Jesus or bringing them to Jesus, not Philip. Jesus just shows up. So we know Philip's alone. We know that. And I would see Philip as somebody who is, is alone and needing a, a very personal encounter with Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He gives Philip exactly what he needs and he walks right up to him not another person no go between he says philip you're in my family now you follow me you're alone maybe your family's failed welcome to the true and better family maybe you don't have loyal friends welcome to the true and better friend who will never fail you and never forsake you i just see this as this incredibly beautiful kind interaction with philip in which he just finds philip alone and physically embraces him and says to follow me it's beautiful and for some, of that, for some of you, that may be the simplicity of your story. You needed, you, maybe there were not other friends pointing you to Jesus, but isn't that the beauty of the gospel? You, you may be in that forgotten town, in a forgotten town that has nobody else telling you about Jesus, and Jesus still finds you and brings you home. That's what I see in Philip, and it's beautiful. Okay, so we have Andrew, we have Simon, we have Philip, and now Philip does for Nathaniel what Andrew for Simon, right? We see that in the text. Let me read this piece just because his dialogue with Jesus is a little bit longer. So starting at verse, um, let's do 45. Philip, here's where we pick up. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, hey, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And, and so Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Sounds disrespectful. It's not disrespectful to Jesus. It's not, it's not even disrespectful. It's just of all the towns that we saw on the map, Nazareth was least significant. Um, I mean, back to Jersey, back to Clovis. Back, what was our other one? Maybe that was it. So it's just his cultural way of saying nothing ever, nothing good has ever come. Like, no, Vermont, I'm a Vermonter. When Bernie Sanders ran for president, it didn't matter what your political persuasion was in Vermont. Guys, my grandmother had Fox News um, juiced into her veins for years, and she was Bernie's like, biggest supporter in Vermont. Why? Because nothing good has ever come out of that place. We just, we just wanted one. That's all we wanted. That's all, that's all he's saying here. Like It's Vermont. Nothing, like, nothing life-changing has ever happened. That's, that's all he's saying. And so Philip said to him, hey, come and see, dog. Check it out. It's, it's for real. And so he comes, and Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. No deceit. So Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus, and you've got to imagine this. Now, Nathanael's walking towards Jesus, and from a long way off, Jesus kind of yells out. It's kind of interesting, like his ethnicity or his nationality, an Israelite, right? A Texan, in whom there is... No, it is as pure as the driven snow. Motives, um, that word deceit, really, it means fishing. Nothing on the line. No, not trying to trick anybody. 
Not trying to catch anything. Just, just a good conscience, a rule keeper, a law keeper, right? And so Nathaniel says, how do you know me like that? And Jesus says, well, before your friend called you, I saw you under the fig tree. That, that's kind of lost on us. Because we're like, all right, fig tree, what's going on? Maybe he was under a fig tree, but culturally that term was used figuratively in two ways. One, it would be used to describe your home, like the resting place that was your home, the privacy that was your home, culturally was described, like that's my fig tree, like that, it, it gives me the shade, it gives me the comfort and the privacy. Jesus may have looked at him and been very specific about something that had just happened in his home before his friend got him. Maybe it was under the fig tree. Maybe it's home. The other way it was used was to refer to meditation and prayer. Um, and we get this because we do the same thing. What are, what are all the weird ways, and not just weird, but what are all the cultural ways as Christians we refer to time with God? Quiet time, daily devotions. What else we got? Uh-oh. Huh? Prayer closet. Yes, fantastic. Fig tree right? Used in the same, in the same way. Uh, there was a comedian one time who renamed his bed the Word, so that when his pastor would call to check on him, be like, oh, sorry, pastor, can't talk right now, I'm in the Word, okay? So fig tree, that's all we got going on here. So basically what Jesus does, though, is he looks at him, and he very specifically says, I saw you in this place doing this thing. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. For you, this past week, under your fig tree, in your home, your private place, Maybe, maybe in the word or in prayer. What are the things that you have done and said that nobody else knows? Some things have been done in the dark and you're ashamed of them. Maybe, maybe that's what Jesus was talking about because he kind of contrasted his character maybe with what had just happened. Maybe. Maybe it was something that was noble but nobody else knew about. Either way, Jesus pulls this thing out and it was enough for Nathaniel to say, Rabbi, that's incredible that you know that about me. Nobody else does. You are the Son of God and you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, you have to insert a little bit of an LOL in this verse because it's, it's, it's meant to be there. Here, here it goes. Jesus answered him, wait, you're saying that because I said I saw you under the fig tree or in your home and I named this thing, you're saying that because of that you believe? You believe? that I'm the, the son of God? Are you serious? That's all it took for you? Jesus answered him again, or he said to him, listen, listen, Nathaniel. I'm, I'm going to say this to you. He commends his faith. He's commending it. He's saying that's beautiful, but as beautiful as it is, you are going to see greater things than that, far greater that's going to blow your mind. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God opening and descending on the Son of Man. Now let me pick that, that line up in a moment, because that kind of brings us to the conclusion of those four pieces. And maybe we just need to wrap with Nathaniel. Why would it be such good news for him that Jesus was the one that Moses and the law and the prophets talked about? See, Moses is very knowledgeable, or yeah, Moses, uh, Nathaniel is very knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures. If his friend could say to him, the guy that Moses talked about and all the law and all the prophets is here, he would know exactly what was going on, right? So he's raised in the church, we would say. Uh, the rule keeper, the law keeper that Jesus said. 
but I would see in him also a passion for the one who will um, bring justice where there is injustice in the world, because that's what the law and the prophets are all about. The law exposes injustice. The law exposes, it's a gift to us because it exposes our inability to love God and to love people. That's what the law does. And then the prophets come along and they're like, you have failed and the prophets have failed and the priests have failed and the kings have failed and injustice is everywhere and we need the one that Moses was talking about because there's only one who will be the better prophet and the better priest and the better king and will right all the wrongs. That's who Nathaniel sees. And it's good news to him. And it would be good news to those of you who, man, you, 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 you know what the Old Testament Scriptures say about who Jesus is meant to be. And you see the brokenness in our world. And you long for justice to be met. It's all found in Jesus. Okay? So their story, now our story. Let me ask you, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, what is your story? Do you have it written down anywhere? Do you know it well enough that you can rehearse it for yourself, for the good of your soul, so that every single day when your heart doubts, you can take the doubt in your heart and tell it, no, look at this. My Father's been kind to me in this place, and this place, and this place. Because let's be honest, we're looking at single places for them. Who's got a story that features a single place with Jesus? Not many of you. We have, we have tons of places where God has pursued us with so much kindness. How many stories feature one person? Very few of you. My story begins with my mom, very kind and gentle woman who loved Jesus and loved me and just read me more Bible stories than I cared to hear as a young boy. And what God used to open my heart and open my eyes, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. A random, odd story that my mom had read to me. But my story features so many other people right? People and places. What was, the first, what was your first view of Jesus? Who did you understand him to be the moment you became a follower? And why was that meaningful to you? What questions do you have for Jesus? Right? We need to be able to rehearse our stories for our soul's good. But guys, we're a sent family. Notice the character in this narrative. Sent out, going to find somebody, bringing them to Jesus. That's why we exist in Okinawa. So we've got to give ourselves to rehearsing for the good of our souls, but also retelling for the good of those in our family and the good of those not yet adopted in. Do you know your story well enough that you can retell it for those around you? What is your story? What is your story? Those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, my prayer for you is that you would see in Andrew or Simon or Philip. I really like Philip's or in Nathaniel, a piece of yourself. And that in the same way, they saw Jesus to be the true and better hero, the substitute, the personal friend, the loyal friend, the family. Or for Nathaniel, the one, because guys, we can all be honest about this, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. Injustices are everywhere. And our world has tried a million different ways to make things just. And it's like our world just gets crazier and crazier and crazier. We all know that. We all feel it. And we hate it. And so I hope that you're like Nathaniel, where you will come to the place in life where you will see Jesus as the only one who can right the wrongs and heal the wounds and restore the broken. Jesus is the only one who cares because the public only cares about the high visibility places. 
the places that will traffic on social media. Jesus is the only one who sincerely cares about a person who's being abused right now, in the dark, unknown to the world. We don't care because we don't know them. It's not that you wouldn't care, but we don't because we don't know them. Not only does Jesus care, like Nathaniel, you will come to see that Jesus is the only one who is going to do something about it and right the wrong. Heal the broken, judge the oppressor, relieve the oppressed, and bring justice to our unjust world. The gospel is beautiful, and Jesus is the hero. And so my prayer for you is Okinawa will become your place in the story, and that you will be able to point to a bunch of people here who pointed you to Jesus, and that you will find yourself in something of a storyline like Simon, Andrew, Nathaniel, or who down there? Philip. Our story. Now, tomorrow's story. Let's wrap it here. Just four ideas I want to leave you with. Tomorrow's story. Found people, find people. Don't quote me, because that is not original with me. I'm not that quick. Uh, but if you, go- you should Google this, though, because what you'll find out is every preacher who has ever preached a sermon has used that phrase. Um, but it's not mine. But we saw that theme in the text, right? Guys, this is why we exist in Okinawa. This has to reframe our orders here. We exist here because Jesus, through his family, goes to the forgotten places, Okinawa, to find the Simons and the Andrews and the Phillips and the Nathaniels who have not yet learned about the beauty of the gospel. And that is why you're here. And that is why we'll go to work, not tomorrow, congratulations, but Tuesday, And that is why you will go to school. We are a sent family. We are found people who now have the privilege. You get to play this role in other people's stories. Did you ever think you would get to live for something so incredible and beautiful? Found people, find people. I love the phrase, come and see. Jesus uses it, but so does one of the young men. And so here's my question for you. The young man who invoked it had seen something so clearly about Jesus. He was so convinced about who Jesus was that he, had the cur- he was able to share his story and the story was doubted. And he's like, don't take my word for it. Come and see. What aspect of Jesus are you seeing so clearly and so consistently as your heart just captured that you could communicate to another person and just be like, don't take my word for it. Come and see. You, Jesus will prove himself to be this to you as well. What do we see about Jesus? And then the name change. Guys, we just have to be, we, we are tempted every single day to think that our Father accepts us because of our performance and our potential. That is religion and it is not the gospel. We are accepted in the family because of Jesus' performance in our place. Remember, he's our substitute. And not that Jesus has potential. That's a weird way to talk about Jesus. But the potential that is there is that his perfection is realized in my life through my profound inability to be the better son or daughter that I'm created to be. Name change. About you in the family. You're a son, you're a daughter, and he's making it come true. So let your hope be in Jesus and what he says about you, not in you. Don't let it be in yourself or what your heart says about you when you doubt. Now, greater things. We've got to close it here. More over. Remember when Nathaniel, when Jesus told Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things, and he said, You're going to see the heavens open. Angels ascending and descending. On what? So this is Nathaniel who knows the Old Testament, right? So he knows about whose dream? Jacob's. And what was that crazy dream? 
Heavens open, ladder comes down, angels ascend and descend. How should we understand the, the angels going up and down? God's kindness, God's mercy, God's restoration, God's eradication of injustice, His redemptive work, all of the beauty of the gospel uh, just pouring out of heaven for our good and for our flourishing. Did you notice who replaces the ladder in the, in the story? Jesus. These are the greater things. If you will become a follower of Jesus, what, Je what Jesus is saying to him is, dog, your expectations of me are way too low. And what Jesus is saying to us through the gospel this morning is, family, your expectation of me is way too low. We're so easily overwhelmed. We so easily don't. But what did Jesus say to us? I am going to rip the heavens open, and through me, the Father is going to pour mercy into your life and kindness and healing and restoration and grace and mercy again tomorrow, even after you do the shameful thing under the fig tree, over and over and over again, greater things. Let that be your confidence going into tomorrow. We're going to do something a little differently this morning. Uh, we're going to celebrate communion here, flowing out of our sermon now. And hopefully you grabbed some of the elements as you came in. But if you did not, they're stationed in the back. And um, I think Ethan's going to pass them out, so you don't have to worry about running around. Guys, communion is a celebration every week that we are part of a more beautiful story now. Our stories have been swept up into one common story. It's God's beautiful story of redemption. All of our stories fit in like a patchwork quilt or like stained glass window. Pre-COVID, we would share communion from one loaf. That's remind us to remind us that we are adopted into one family. We have one Savior. We have one storyline. We would drink from one cup, one Savior. His blood poured out for us so that we can live. So now as we continue to write our stories in the, we don't write our stories, as we continue to discover our stories in the gospel, we come to see Jesus as the bread of life who was broken so that those of us who are already broken can be made whole through his brokenness, the gift of the gospel. So let's, in a moment, we'll actually partake together, something we don't get to do when we cycle through. But before we partake, let's pause and thank God that he was broke, Jesus was broken in our place. And as a family, let's just confess. I've not acknowledged my brokenness this week, or in my brokenness, I've run to so many other people, places, or things other than Jesus for my healing. And let's ask, Father, through your spirit, heal the brokenness in every heart in this room through the brokenness of Christ. Make us whole. So let's pray, and then we'll partake together. Father, we are the broken ones, but Jesus was broken for our restoration. And so even though our hearts have run to so many other places to find healing, Father, by your grace, bring us back to Christ where we find the restoration for our souls that we so desperately need. Let's partake together. Guys, the cross was the most intimate moment in the history of the world. Intimate moments between Jesus, the Son, and His Father. And intimate moments 
where Jesus' heart and mind had in it the name of every person who would benefit from his blood spilling to the ground. Your name was in his heart and on his mind as the life flowed from his body. That life flowed from his body into the darkness of our death, and his death is what brings us life. And that's why when we drink the juice, it is both sweet and it is refreshing. It is the beauty of the gospel, the sweetness that gives life to our soul. So let's confess and then partake together. Jesus, we forget that life is found in your death. And death, though once it was our greatest enemy, is actually now our greatest ally because even in your death we have our life. And when we finally die, our we will be welcomed into your forever kingdom. Death is no longer a threat to us. But Jesus, rather than satisfying our souls through your life-giving blood this week, run to a million different places, and many of us have run to the darkness and privacy of a fig tree where we have sought to satisfy our hearts apart from you. But even still, you welcome us back as your forever friends, your forever family. And so we partake now, not only confessing this, but thanking you that your blood is a sign that you will never let us go. We are forever sons and forever daughters. Let's partake together.